Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Welcome to, I think it must be about the 35th or 36th message in the book of Acts, if not more. And we are, if you're visiting for the first day, we're making our way through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're looking at the history of the early church. And today's message is a second in a series that I've titled the Jerusalem Council or the Jerusalem Summit. And this is part two. And today's subject is, why are you testing God? Why are you testing God? And we're going to be looking at chapter 15, verse 6 through to 11. So if you turn there, I'm going to start reading. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Just as they will. Verse 12 says, And all the assembly fell silent. Now I want you to keep your finger in Acts chapter 15 because we're going to be turning to a few verses apart from that. But I'm going to need you to come back virtually immediately, so keep your hand in there. Now, portions of the Bible are like keys that unlock different rooms of understanding. Portions of the Bible are like keys that unlock doors to rooms of understanding. One chapter, like keys, can unlock one door to one room of understanding. Another chapter in the Bible can unlock one door that leads to one room that leads to multiple doors in that room to multiple rooms of understanding. But there are some chapters that are like keys that open up a door to a whole corridor of doors that lead to rooms of understanding. Now, if important buildings 
on a street were chapters of the Bible, Acts chapter 15 would be the Empire State Building. Here we are at a place in time where history literally was in the making. The Jews up until now had a complete monopoly on God. They were the exclusive club. And if you wanted to become a member, there was strict criteria. Now, everything was going to change. And everything that they were familiar with was beginning to be challenged strongly. This was a radical development. And the importance of this chapter is incalculable. This is the place where the Old and the New Testament actually practically converge. The Old and the New, they are one and the same, yet there is a difference. Novum Testamentum in Vetere Latet, that's Latin. And I don't know it because I'm clever. I know it because I memorized it. And it means the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Like a, a boy who becomes a man, same person, just like a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. They are one and the same but there's a difference. This is a historic event of seismic proportions. These events that we're looking at will shape the future of all biblical history. We, as Christians, with regard to what we are today, has been shaped by Acts chapter 15. We are what we are sitting here because of Acts chapter 15. Now, in Acts up until chapter 9, we've seen mainly Jews becoming Christians. Then, boom! Chapter 10, Cornelius, an Italian, gets saved. We're going to come back to him shortly. In chapter 11, unnamed missionaries begin to speak to the Greeks. Then the Jerusalem church, they hear about this and they send Barnabas to investigate these Greeks, these Gentiles, these non-Jews coming to faith in the God of Abraham. And when Barnabas sees them, it says he rejoiced at the evidence of the grace of God working in these Gentiles. Later on in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, which is what we've been looking at over the past few weeks, where they preached the gospel to a man, if you remember, called Sergius Paulus, who's on the island of Cyprus. I mean, all of these random, foreign, non-Jewish people and places. Then later on in the journey, when confronted with Jewish unbelief, this is what they declare. You know what? Because you don't 
accept the message. Because you don't see yourselves as individuals who ought to accept the good news of the gospel. We're not going to turn to the Gentiles if you don't want it. Then on return from that trip, they say in Acts chapter 14 verse 27 that God, as they, re- as they relay the message back to the home church with regard to what God has done, they say God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now how many Jews by birth do we have in here today? I suspected maybe there might have just been one, I don't know, like second, removed, I don't know. I, I spoke to someone who says they're one sixteenth Jewish the other day. <laughs> you know what I mean? But not many of us, right? And it's funny how 2,000 years ago, this started, we're reading a, historic, a historical document that's over 2,000 years old, yet... It relates so clearly to our lives today. Because we are still Gentiles who are coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah. Actually the Messiah who came for the whole world. Which was God's original plan in the Old Testament. But it's become manifest now in the New Testament. Now... As I said, Jews up to this point wouldn't normally have a problem with Gentiles coming to faith. But some were becoming very concerned and even alarmed what with the frequency and the quantity of converts. And these Gentile converts were being welcomed into fellowship by baptism and not circumcision. It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of Gentiles, but could they approve of conversion without circumcision, of faith in Jesus without the law? Things driving me mad. How could, how could they approve of conversion without circumcision, of faith in Jesus? Without the law? Nah. We cannot allow this to happen, they said. Look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I'm reading from the ESV, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So this issue causes major controversy, as we saw last week. And if you were here last week, it's going to be much more helpful for you, although hopefully there will be something for you to glean this week. This has become a major issue to the point where the matter could not be resolved. To the point where the plurality of elders or the team of leaders at Antioch, Paul, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius and Mannion, the five, they, they couldn't arrive at a solution. And we saw that in the midst of it all, Peter, the apostle, the great apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, unlike Kanye, 
Peter was on, check it, he was on the side, he was on the opposite side of the debate as opposed to Paul. So Paul's on one side saying one thing, Peter the apostle, I mean heavyweight apostle, I mean here comes Peter, woo, what, Peter that walked with Jesus, woo. Now he's on the other side. How confusing we saw last week. And to make matters worse, Barnabas then switches sides and joins Peter and disagrees with Paul, his brethren who he's been rolling with for the past X amount. You're like, what? Confusion. Now, we saw that Paul eventually rebukes Peter, who comes to his senses along with Barnabas. And we see that, check it, did you know what Peter's problem was? You know why Peter sat down with the Gentiles and was cool with them, and then the Jews came, he was like, boy. And then he began to side with his, with his boys, the Jews. Do you know why he did it? Well, it's interesting. Peter's problem was fear. Peter's problem was fear. Because at one point you can be like, but Peter, surely you must know the difference between Wagwan. You know what I mean? How could, you, how, could you be, how could you be the great apostle Peter, stand up in Acts chapter 2, preach the first message for the church, telling people they must repent and come and, come and be baptized? How could you do that? And then all of a sudden now you're, what's going on? See, it wasn't that Peter didn't believe what Paul was saying. It's Peter feared the Jews. Have a look with me at Galatians 2, verse 11 to 12. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face, you know, publicly. Because he stood condemned or he was to be blamed. He was in error. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he was jamming with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Why? Fearing the circumcision party. These guys had very, very strong influence. And if you know anything about Peter, as we're going to see in a minute, historically, Peter's got problems with the Gentiles. So, it weren't, it so Peter's ish, ish, issue wasn't theological. It was the fear of man. And how many of us can identify with that? We know what's right. And I mean, we know what we ought to do. We know what we ought to say. But peer pressure is a powerful thing. Positively, but negatively. And Peter, <laughs> Peter is helped by a stiff rebuke. Sometimes we feel like in order to help someone who's in that place of struggle, feeling intimidated, sometimes we feel like, oh, we need to put an arm around them. Now we do need to put an arm around them, probably more often than not. But then sometimes there's a point where your best friend needs you to tell them the truth. They don't need, oh, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I hear what you're, yeah, I hear what you're saying, you know. No, they need to hear, no, I'm not feeling you, fam. Sir, I love you, but hear what? This is what it is. How many of you know if Michael Jackson had probably had someone close to him that wasn't just around him as a yes man because they're getting, you know, thousand dollar handouts, 
and just said, you know what, brethren, whether you like me or you hate me, I'm going to tell you, stop getting plastic surgery. <laughs> Serious. You know, just like we said last week, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If I'm up here, and I got, one, one day I, had, I was up here and I had my, my, my flyers down. Did I use that term anymore? That's back in the days. My zip was down, right? And I was there for a minute. And I think it was someone come on the front and was like, giving me the nod and the wink. And I never got it for about five minutes and then eventually I got it. But that's love. Your friend's got bogey in their nose. You know what I mean? You're going to tell them, aren't you? You're going to say, hmm, you know what, Bridgerton, look. And it's, embar it's embarrassing. Someone tell you that your breath smells or you've you, you got body odor. It's embarrassing. But thank God that you told me that. A lie? So, after Peter gets not a stiff drink, he gets a stiff rebuke, it helps him. And my man comes back to his senses. And Peter then returns to Jerusalem, convicted now of his hypocrisy. So he comes back straight, right? Yet the drama with the troublemakers, remember we met them last week, the drama with the Judaizers, with the circumcision party, the drama's hardly resolved. Look at verse 3 of Acts chapter 15. So being sent on their way by the church, they, that's Paul and Barnabas, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, which is the very bone of contention, and brought great joy to all the brothers who evidently were not teamed up with the legalists, right? Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Notice verse 4. Paul and Barnabas, they don't shrink back from declaring what they believe. They know that the Gentiles are the bone of contention, yet they're coming on their way to Jerusalem to, to, to deal with this matter at the summit at this Jerusalem council, and on their way, they're talking about the wonderful work that God is doing with the Gentiles. Knowing that it's a bone of contention, but they're so convinced that it's God that they declare it and they are celebrating it. They don't shrink back from declaring what they believe, and what they believe is that God is working. Yet they're not welcomed by everyone in Jerusalem. Verse 5. But some, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary. It's like, look, we already had this debate. Now you lot are coming to Jerusalem like what? Like you're going to change anything. We still firmly believe that it is necessary to circumcise these Gentiles and also for them to keep the law of Moses. Now note the word necessary or must, depending on your translation in verse 5, in conjunction with the word cannot in verse 1. It's emphatic. See, and this is what complicates the matter even further. They're saying you can't be saved unless you do these, meet these two requirements. The thing that further confused this matter is these legalists, they believe in Jesus. Last week we had a look at a list of modern day equivalent groups who also believe in Jesus. But they're saying the same stuff that these legalists were saying. It's Jesus plus. And without the plus, our extras, 
and it's different for different groups. You can't be saved, they say. See? They had them then, and we have them now. Thank the Lord for Acts chapter 15, where now we have the church leaders from Antioch and the church leaders from Jerusalem in council. Here we are at the Jerusalem summit. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. A meeting of the heads of early church government, and it's beautiful. It's difficult, but it's beautiful. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate. How many of you know that there should always be room for healthy discussion? I mean, the Lord himself says in Isaiah, says, look, to sinners, come. Let's reason together. We ought to be the same. We ought to be able to sit down and talk about issues that we may particularly not disagree on. And even debate sometimes. Formally. But notice, they're not disputing about, they're not arguing about the color of the carpet or the church roof fund or what type of fair trade coffee they should choose for the tea shop. No, this was a crisis meeting because the gospel for the world for all time was under threat. So here we see the crisis that convened the summit. And we're going to hear Luke summarize three of the speeches at this conference, one of which we shall look at today. Peter, Paul, along with Barnabas, and James, they will all step up to the microphone like at a conference, and they will have their moment. They will have their 45 minutes, and they will share at the council their perspective. Here we go as Peter stands up in the middle of verse 7. And what does he say? He says he stood up and he said, Brothers! I wonder what happened to the sisters. Probably just men. I mean, I've been thinking about this with regard to this whole issue of circumcision. These brothers saying, oh, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. Okay, well, how about the women? That's for another week. So Peter stands up and he says, brothers, as much as there's dissension, Peter refers to the audience as family. He says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. Now notice that. God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He says, you know. Why are you, de why are you denying the facts? You know that back in the day, approximately, now this is about 10 years ago, God clearly showed us his will. Now what's he talking about? There's 10 years between Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 10, approximately. And he's saying, you remember what took place then? You know. And before he makes his first point, Peter uses the same language that Paul uses in Acts chapter 13. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 13, a couple chapters before. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Did you hear that? The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. 
The Israelites were not originally a people. But God made them a people. He elected them by his own sovereign choice. And Paul is actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, where it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose them. Did he not? And Peter utilizes the same language construction, but cleverly substitutes the Jews for the Gentiles. Watch, verse 7 again. He says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And what Peter is talking about is what happened with Cornelius. That's Acts chapter 10. Peter says, by my mouth, remember? And it's this, that, that he says, it's this that he says happened in the early days, this 10 years ago, where Peter, like these troublemakers, these Judaizers, wasn't accepting. He wasn't accepting of Gentiles back then. Even though he was saved and he was converted, still struggling. But you see, the thing is, Cornelius was a man who genuinely feared God. A man whose heart had been affected by God. In Acts chapter 10, verse 2, going back 10 years, about Cornelius, it says he was a devout man who feared God with, his, with all his household. And he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. This was a man that God was drawing to himself. And God was going to use this incident to show Peter at the time, who was the most influential of the apostles, that Gentiles were a part of God's plan of redemption. And that Peter shouldn't reject those that God accepts. And while an angel from God speaks to Cornelius, giving him specific instructions, the Lord is simultaneously in another place speaking to Peter in a vision. Remember? All right, turn with me just back to Acts chapter 10. See, remember, Peter's at the conference and he's communicating to this divided group. And he's using history and scripture to prove his point. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. <clears throat> it says, the very next day, this is after they've both been spoken to by God. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, this is the people from Cornelius, Peter went up on to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now the people, that, Cornelius' crew are coming to his house. He don't know nothing about it. But he's up there praying. Verse 10. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him that said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, hmm, by no means, Lord. 
for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter's perplexed as to what this vision means, verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Side note, that's the spirit speaking. Don't listen to the Jehovah's Witness who tell you that the Holy Spirit is a force. He's electricity. Electricity can't speak. You know what I'm saying? The spirit said to him, the spirit is a person. And he says, look, go down without hesitation. I mean, so Peter obediently goes down, greets the men and invites them in for the night. The next day, verse 23, he arose and went with them. I mean, it's a big thing already, him even inviting them in his yard. Because you're going to see in a minute that this stuff never, as far as Peter's concerned, you don't do this as a Jew. I'll come to visit you and you're a Gentile. I'll stand up out the door and I'll shout through the window or through the doorway. I'm not coming in your house. To, what, to get contaminated by you Gentile? So... The next day he arose, they've stayed in his house, and he goes with them, and some of the brothers, check it, and some of the brothers from Joppa, this is where Peter's residing at the time, some of the brothers, and we're going to come back to them, they go with Peter and they accompany him, verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. This is where Cornelius lives. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends as a houseful. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. See, Cornelius ain't there yet, but he's getting there, right? Peter says to him, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Basically, don't worship me. And verse 27, as he talked with him, he went in, which is big things, and found many per persons gathered. And he said to them, check it. This is a statement. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation but God. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, <laughs> why you sent for me? Now check it. Peter, you should know better than that. I mean, you've been preaching the gospel for look how long. You're wondering why you're here? See, this goes to show that in Peter's, he's still not switched on to the point where Gentiles and Abbey, Jesus never just comforted the Jews. At one point, Jesus said that to the disciples, didn't he? He says, don't go anywhere other than the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But at this point, things have changed now, but Peter still ain't got it. It's like, okay, <laughs> I had a vision God spoke to me, evidently he spoke to you, you sent your servants, it's like, why? Cornelius then explains the angelic visitation and the command from God to call Peter. And Peter must have been like, wow, this is so specific, precise, and unambiguous. 
Cornelius then says in verse 33, look, so after seeing or after hearing that the angel speak to me, I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. It's funny that Cornelius is aware of the presence of God. I mean, God isn't more in one place than he is in any other place. But it's, can you recognize that he's here? And so we might be, oh, we're here gathered together this, this morning, this afternoon, brethren, and the presence of God is here. You know, you hear people say that, right? Like it weren't there before we came. God is everywhere. You know what I mean? But you're in a place where you recognize it. And it affects the way you respond when you recognize that God is in the building. Now note that. I sent for you at once. And we're here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Like hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Ain't you got something to tell us, Peter? So Peter, <laughs> the penny drops. Peter opened his mouth, verse 34. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now I might be reading this to you this morning and you're sitting down there thinking, what on earth? I don't even care about these Jews and Gentiles and Peter and I don't care. That's like, that's like walking past Canary Wharf Tower. Like me saying, you know that building, which one? The one down at Canary, which building? But you don't know the big old massive building that the planes have to fly around because it's, you, you, it's like, you, you ever been to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Elephant Castle? Now, most of you know it. Some of you are like, hmm? The metropo it's opposite the elephant. This big old massive, like, 18th century building. It's so big, my point is, you miss it. And I'm saying that this is gigantic. You might be like, okay, I hear you, Robert. <laughs> you might not be convinced, but it is. And Paul's like, Peter's like, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That means that prior to that, he thought that God did. The man, to some degree, is racist. He'd be like, we're special. We're special. That means you're not. We are there's a distinction. But now he says, whoa, this is a revelation. Fellas, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Then Peter, on that basis now, because the penny's dropped. Peter now proceeds to think, well, if God doesn't show any partiality, that means that message that was so good for us, the good news, the gospel, He's also for these, and he proceeds to preach the good news to Cornelius, his family, and his friends. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, I mean, Peter's on a roll, and, he, and he's like, oh, he's oh, I see it now, and I get it. He's still, he's still, he, he has no idea what's coming next. While Peter still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. In my mind, 
I feel like it's like it's like the it's like the Holy Spirit is there. God is there, and He's just waiting to affect these people's lives like He's affected you if you've been born again, like He's affected me. And the Holy Spirit's just waiting, can't we? He'd be like, Peter, man, don't you get it? Come on, Peter. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates. So he opens his eyes and Peter sees it. And before Peter can even finish, it says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Verse 45, and the believers from among who? Now you're looking at me, you ain't looking at your Bible. Verse 45, and the believers among the circumcised, that's his boys who are with him, who had come with Peter were amazed. Now, you're sitting there looking at me, you're not amazed. They were, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles? This doesn't fit the mold that we're accustomed to. This pretty much breaks all the rules. I mean, talk about the tales of the unexpected. Taking it back to the 90s right there. I mean, Peter didn't even get to finish his message. While he was still speaking, the Lord saved them, filling them with his spirit. How do we know? Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in different known languages. Just like they were. Remember back in Acts 2? They came out of the, the, the upper room and they were speaking in languages they didn't know. That people were like, huh? Parthians, Elamites, those who dwelled in Mesopotamia. Heard them like, they're speaking in my language. I can hear clearly and fluently. When did he learn to speak Macedonian? And, and it, was, it was all of these languages all coming out at the same time. And the apostles are... A glorifying God. That's why one of the things we say, if you're speaking in... Let me not even go there. When it comes to speaking in tongues. Anyway. And this is what the Gentiles are... The Gentiles are doing what... That's what happened to us. This is... This is so unusual. They're extolling God. This is unprecedented. And, and here's the point. Then Peter declared, verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? They're, how can we deny it? They're saved. They've been brought into union with God. They're one with his spirit. How can we not baptize them? How could we even say, well, they're Shut your mouth, but you're chatting about we can't baptize them. Of course, how can we not baptize them now? Paul says, if you like, Peter says to his, his boys. And they're referring to the upper room experience in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. But Peter's argument is, they were, check it, back to the conference. I'm Peter, addressing the conference, Right? Reflecting back on what took place in Acts chapter 10, 10 years ago, Peter's argument is, listen to me. They were saved before they were baptized. Because I said, on the basis of that now, let's, how can we not baptize them? They were saved before they were baptized without being circumcised. You see Peter's point? 
chatting about you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. And this is the Apostle Peter. With reference to individuals who were there, they were witnesses. They possibly may even have been there, standing there at a conference when Peter said it. Brethren, do you remember? And the man's like, yeah, for real, we was there. Verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. As we come back to Acts 15. And Peter says, back in the middle of verse 7, I say, keep your finger in Acts 15. Peter says to them in the middle of verse 7, and you know. Because some of you were there, possibly. You know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, and God, who unlike you, God, who knows the heart, literally the heart knower, God bore witness to them or showed his approval of them visually, openly, unmistakably, which shows that God accepts men and women from every nation. That's why we can sit here today from every nation see meaning there is no racial barrier to conversion see by giving them the holy spirit just as he did to us says peter they as gentiles had the same experience that we as jews had yet without being circumcised now if they want to get circumcised they can but they don't have to not to be accepted by God. Therefore, they shouldn't have to do it to be accepted by you. And you know this, says Peter. Why then are you hardening your hearts? Silence. You can hear a pin drop. As Peter says this. You know this. Why are you then hardening your hearts? Verse 9. Acts chapter 15. And he made no distinction. That is God. Between us Jews and them Gentiles. Having cleansed or purified their hearts. By works. Is that what it says? He cleansed and purified their hearts by works. Did he cleanse and purify their hearts by circumcision? No, it says he cleansed their hearts by faith. Demonstrating that it's the inward purity of the heart that makes fellowship possible. Not the external purity of diet or ritual. What? Because you're circumcised, you think that you're accepted by God. What? Because you worship at the temple in Jerusalem. What, because you're Jews and you don't eat certain types of food? No. No, brethren. It's not the external purity or diet and ritual. It's a purification by faith and not works. And Peter was trying to help them see that God was working in their very midst. Granted, he was doing something different, but not out of character. 
This, is all, this had all been prophesied, as we will hear when James stands up to speak at the conference next week. God is in this. God is among us. And God is among us working. And you know it. Therefore, why are you tempting God? Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Like you can't be sure that this is God. After all the evidence that he has provided, God is with us working. And it's like this. Jesus saved you and promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. True? Yet you're asking, Lord, I'm not really sure that you're with me, you know, Lord. Because I'm going through a hard time right now. So, Lord, just to help me, just, just let lightning strike from the left to the right. And then I'll know that you're with me. Eh? No. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's like Job's wife said to him, Job, you've lost your home, you've lost your children, you've lost your health. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says, why? Looking at the circumstances, why? I mean, I'm not going to... Job ain't a light-headed, hyper-charismatic, like prosperity gospel type individual. You know, he don't deny the reality. You know, that's what I was taught 15 years ago as a Christian. What? You got? You did you say you got a cold? Don't say you got a cold. That's a negative confession. Even though I got bogey running out my nose, my throat is sore, my eyes are red. No, confess that you're that you're that you're healed in Jesus' name. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray if you're sick, but come on. If I'm sick, I'm sick. If I say I'm sick, if I say I'm not sick, I'm lying. I'd rather say I'm sick and not break the ninth commandment. So Job doesn't deny reality, right, is what I'm saying. Job says, Psh, listening to his wife, I mean, based on, what, based on the circumstances, you're, it's, it, could, it could well seem like you're right, whatever Job's wife's name was. Seems like you're right, missus. He says, I know the situation looks twisted, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there and curse God. Rather, the, the scripture says, Job shaved his head, he tore his garments, he fell to his knees, he raised his hands, and he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm not going to tempt God. What? Because it don't look like he's with me. The devil says to Jesus, just throw yourself off the temple, innit? I mean, if you're so sure that God is with you, I mean, he'll send his angels to catch you. Jesus says, nah. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And check it, you're talking about individuals who are going through a hard time. Talk about the Lord Jesus. He's there, ain't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Out in the, in the brush. You talk about a hard time. Look at Job. Job's covered in sores from head to toe. Job has lost his business. Job has lost his children, plural. He's lost everything, apart from this nagging woman in his ears, nenge nenge in his ears. <laughs> don't, give jo- don't give Job a choice, because he probably would have got rid of her, right, and kept the rest. I'm talking about individuals going through a hard time, yet still willing to say, Lord, you're God, and you're good, despite what I see. Now, it's all about recognizing the presence of God. Just because you're going through a difficult time doesn't mean that God has left you. I think someone said that it's at those times when you feel like God has left you, that God is actually closest to you working on you personally and working for you not against you the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight and sight is a sense so we walk by faith not our senses it ain't about what we feel because if we do that we can, we, can, we can sometimes get to a point where we call God a liar you might be here today and you're single and you're unmarried and you're having sex. You're putting God to the test. You might be married and having an affair with a woman that is not your wife. You are tempting God. And you might say, How? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, particularly speaking to Israel with regard to sexual immorality. Verse 7, do not be idolaters, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, as some of them were, speaking of Israel, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a reference to illicit, indecent sexual behavior. Now look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble. He said, boy, I'm not having, well, that's not me, boy, I don't know who you're talking about right there, boy, but that's not me, okay, but do you grumble? I know I do, and I do it when I forget the sense of the presence of God. He hasn't gone anywhere, you know who's checked out? Me, and I'm on some mad trip, like, what's going on? I'm tired of this, I'm fed up of this. Fed up of what? 
Fed up of what? What are you fed up with that you, like me, grumble about? You tell me. Well, I can, I can assure you, in that moment, you're not thinking about God being present. And you think about their condition. It's, it's referring to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Not like the Lord Jesus was. 40 days and 40 nights is more than enough. They're out there for 40 years in the wilderness. Talk about no running water. Talk about no electricity. Talk about something to complain about. I'd be like, Lord, surely they had good reason to mumble and grumble. No, they didn't. Lord, surely I got good reason to mumble and grumble. No, you, no, you don't. Surely I got good reason I'm married. But sure, my wife, she's long. Tired of her. I want something new. I want something fresh. Get me? I'm in my 40s now. What do they say? What do they say about when you're in your 40s? Life begins at 40, but there's another one. I can't remember it. Um, I don't know. Coming like when you get to 40, you need to rejuvenate. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know what I mean? Like, midlife crisis. Tired of this. You know what I mean? I'm going to find me something fresh. You know, when I do that, I've lost sight of the presence of God in my life. How? I mean, they, the scripture says, never had right to grumble and test Christ. How much more us in the 21st century, lap of luxury, fuller creature comforts type. We got no, have, do, we even, do we have a right to murmur and complain and grumble? Do we? I'm asking the question. But they grumble, let alone commit adultery or be fornicating with someone that's not my wife. Single and you're with someone that they're not your husband. You're, you're, you're tempting Christ. Right here it says that the Lord just unleashed on them. I mean, how does the Lord feel when we walk in sin knowingly? Listen, it's the grace of God that he don't unleash on you. God unleashed on two people, I think in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. And they, got, they genuinely got slain in the spirit. And when they hit the deck, they never got up. Throw a little curtain on them or a little cloth on them and expect that in what half an hour they might get up i remember when i used to be in them situations lying down thinking okay i'm down i'm on the floor now what do i do let, 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 let me give it five minutes and then maybe i'll i'm getting sidetracked i'm saying god is ready to unleash on us because of our sin but he remembers that he unleashed on christ for those of us that are saved, what mercy, what grace. Let's learn from what happens here, verse 10. Let's not grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Question. 
Now, why did Israel do this? Why did they fornicate? Why did they worship idols? Which is one of the biggest commandment break, commandments broken today. Idolatry. We don't have time. Why did they do this? They did it for the same reason that we do it. Now, could I ask you to listen carefully? I know, it's, I know we've been here a minute now. But listen carefully. What we just read in 1 Corinthians 10 is a quote from the book of Exodus, chapter 17. It says, listen. We're, asking the, we're answering the question, why did they do it? And we're going to see that it's for the same reason that we do it. Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin or zin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. They're traveling through the wilderness and camped at a place called Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Now I'll be like, Lord, the people are thirsty. But the issue is that they quarreled, their attitude. They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Like, we're here and God has left us. We're here thirsty and God can do anything, yet he won't give us water to drink. What's that all about, Moses? is what they're saying. And Moses says, why are you testing the Lord? Like he hasn't shown you his mercy, like he hasn't been good to you, verse 3. But the people thirst there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses, against Ephraim, (laughs) against Patrick, and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? What? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. I mean, what a conclusion to jump to. How you get there from there? To kill you. God brought you out here to kill you. Are you crazy? The Lord just saved you. He just saved you out of Egypt. Under bondage. Pharaoh. Like that the satanic dictator who had you making bricks and in slime pits where he was whipping you and you were slaves and rolling over and dying and they were just rolling your carcass over. You're forgetting where you're coming from and now you're thinking that God has brought here to... The Lord is with you. He hasn't left you. But you're in a bit of a predicament. Fair enough. The Lord will be like, well, we can, we can talk about this. And there's a difference between raising your fist to God and saying, why are you doing this? There's a difference between that and, Lord, psh, what, I'm in a predicament right now, you know, Lord. I don't know what's going on. Boy, Lord, some light right now would be helpful. There's a difference. Moses is saying, the Lord is with you. Why are you putting Christ, why are you putting God to the test? Just trust him. Surely he's trustworthy. I mean, he ain't going to bring you out and do all that he done. You get me? Like, fire by, by, by night when it's freezing in the wilderness. 
heat and sunshine and light in the daytime, scorching you, right? So the Lord brings the cloud to prevent you from getting scorched when it's hot in the daytime. Be like, the Lord marked the whole of the Egyptians that was running after you. Split the Red Sea. I mean, I mean, they, they got a bad memory, bad case of amnesia. The Lord is with you. He's faithful. Just trust him. Verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord. Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord then proceeds to provide water for them. He didn't have to, but he chose to. See, in his mercy. Now watch how they tested God. Look at verse 7. Oh my goodness. Verse 7. And he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah. Is it bitterness? Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? You see how we... Just like them, test God. God ain't really, God don't really love me. He would, if God did love me, he wouldn't let me be going through this. Did you know that God is more concerned about the production of character than he is the provision of our comfort? You will commit adultery and harden your heart, pretending that God isn't present. You will fornicate, resisting the Holy Spirit, you know. You who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, like God's not present. Yeah, well, I can do this. God ain't, God, God ain't going to see me. I mean, what goes through our mind in those moments that allows our conscience to be defiled to the point where we sear it, we harden it, and we sin? Like what? Yeah, I've done it. What? When Potiphar's wife gave her naked body to Joseph, and, she, and trust me, she must have looked good. Because she's married to a, a, an Egyptian official. She was hot. And I heard someone saying, so is hell. <laughs> right? When she came with her naked body to Joseph, Joseph looked around the room and Joseph said, boy, well, there ain't no one around, so let's do this thing. Now, he didn't say that, did he? On the contrary, he looked around and was cognizant of the presence of God and said, how can I do this great evil and sin against Potiphar? Well, he would have been sinning against Potiphar. But that's not what Joseph's saying. Joseph said, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? He didn't put God to the test. Even though he was in a terribly difficult situation. How many of you know the story of Joseph? He was in a terrible situation and had been there for at least 10 years and was going to be there for at least another 7, 17 years of darkness. Read Genesis. 
There's about, there's about 20 chapters given just to Joseph's life. Is it 20? Maybe 10. A whole portion of Genesis given to the life of Joseph and his difficult time. I ain't even got time to go into it. Even though he was going through a difficult time, a terrible situation, and the very next day he would be charged with rape that he, that he didn't commit. Yet, he doesn't tempt God. Do you believe that the Lord is with you? Well, don't tempt him. Don't put him to the test. And, getting back to Acts chapter 15, how would these Jewish believers putting God to the test. Verse 10, you still got your hand, your finger in Acts 15. Verse 10, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter's saying to the council, please don't draw for this circumcision malarkey. He says, don't put these Gentile believers under the law. Don't put yourselves back under the law from which you have been liberated. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Galatians 5, as we get ready to finish. For freedom Christ has set us free. Galatians 5, verse 1 through 6. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery or bondage. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, which nobody can do. Verse 4, you are severed, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the, sp for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 11 and 12. But we believe, says Peter as he concludes, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12 and all the assembly fell silent under Im immense conviction. Peter said, you know. And could I say today, we know, don't we? Even if you're here and you've never ever been to church before, you've never read the Bible, you don't even know who Jesus is, you know Romans 1 says, 2 says, God has revealed himself in creation. The Bible says in, Acts, in, in Psalm 14 verse 1, only the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I'm not trying to call nobody a fool. I suspect you're pretty wise. Therefore, you know. And as my brothers and sisters who have been reading the Bible, 
have been fellowshipping with the saints for weeks, months, years even. Have, have, have you, have we, have I tested God by walking in sin like it's nothing? Have I forgotten that the presence of God is everywhere? David said, even if I make my bed in hell, Lord, there ain't nowhere that you ain't. And I mean, and that's a part of the, re- that's a part of the reason why we fall into sin. Because we're not allowing our minds to be renewed by that reality. And so my brothers and my sisters, please don't test the Lord. Don't put him to the test. And may God help us. The context of 1 Corinthians 10, down in verse 13, it says, Paul says, There is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. You ain't going through nothing that no one else ain't going through. It's just different. You know what I mean? And if you ain't at the moment, you will be. And if you are at the moment, there's a little bit of encouragement that there's going to come a time where things are going to abate slightly. But there's no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man, yet God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able, but will always, with the temptation, make a way of escape. And that way of escape is, wow, God. You're present and you're, you're my very present help in time of need. Shall we pray? Father, I'm so sobered. Um, one, by the immense importance of Acts chapter 15 and how it affects our lives today as believers. Wow. The gospel was defined and redefined. But Lord, I'm also sobered Lord at your response to sin in the old covenant and yet your absolute mercy and grace in the new covenant the scripture says that the law came through Moses but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ and as believers we thank you that we enjoy that grace forgive us for grumbling forgive us for complaining Lord I don't mean to say it's not hard. It is hard, Lord. I know for some of my brothers and sisters, even this afternoon. Yet, Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen them. Strengthen us, Lord, in our time of difficulty. And help us to be like Job. Where where regardless of what happens, we never sin with our mouth. Help us not to put you to the test. Father, I pray for those that are hearing this maybe for the first time. I pray, Lord, that you would convict their hearts and help them to realize, Lord, that the the world doesn't revolve around them. Today, Lord, the, the worst and most common idol that we worship is us, is self. It's a multi billion pound industry. And Lord, I pray that you would help. Maybe someone this afternoon, Lord, see that, wow, I've been walking around the planet not realizing that God is here. Ephesians 2, Lord, says people are in the world without God. I pray that you'd open someone's eyes today by your spirit. 
And help them to see, Lord, that they don't need to be, they don't need some long initiation. They don't need to be circumcised. It's not a one-year trial period, Lord. They can, they can receive forgiveness right now. Even as I'm speaking, Lord, I pray that you'd be changing people's hearts by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus. And for Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.